listening to Behind the Lens. And yes, you are listening to Behind the Lens. Welcome back to another episode after an insane weekend in Hollywood. Uh, I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. Uh, you can find my movie reviews and interviews online, moviesharkdeblore.com, and print online in the U.S. and abroad and numerous other places. But every Monday, you will find me right here at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on AdrenalineRadio.com. And I don't know, Brian, do, is our sister station site working too? Advice Radio? Actually, that is now def- I forgot the word. Defunct? Defunct, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we are no longer associated with AdviceRadio.com. That's okay. But we are AdrenalineRadio.com, and we got a new website, so you're... Uh, if you want to look at, at Debbie's profile and then follow her on, on Facebook and Twitter and all that, it's on AdrenalineRadio.com. And the the new website, which started this year for the for Adrenaline Radio, is beautiful, I must say. I do enjoy it. It's a lot easier to navigate. It's And it's also cleaned up after our lovely Islamic, our radical Islamic terrorist attacks and hacking. I try not to remember those dark times. Yes, I know. I know. I know. But... As I was saying, you know, we've got a great show today. Two incredible directors. At 11.15, we've got documentarian Steve Kachonis. He has a new documentary out that was done in connection with the Annenberg Foundation. And the Annen- uh, and Wallace Annenberg is a producer on the documentary. It's called Country, Portraits of an American Sound. And he takes us not a- on a sonic trip through the history of country music, but does so focusing on the photographs that have been taken over the decades that have helped shape the country music look and sound. So I can't wait to talk to Steve. And thrilled, at 11.30, at the half-hour mark, we've got Mike Mendez, director and editor of a new horror film you're going to want to check out called Don't Kill It. Stars Dolph Lundgren. Unfortunately, Dolph couldn't be here today. He is traveling. Uh, I'm going to be sitting down with him tomorrow morning, as a matter of fact. So hopefully next week you'll get to hear some of the clips of my interview with Dolph tomorrow. But uh, Dolph stars as a demon hunter in Don't Kill It. And there's some really great stuff happening in the film. It, it's got some fun moments. Written by Dan Burke and Robert Olson. They were both editors on Stakeland 2, Stakelander, with uh, director, Nick Demi- director Nick Demichi, who, fantastic director. He did the original Stakeland, Cold in July, The Sacrament. So Mike teaming up with Dan and Robert, uh, you know that the result is going to be great, and it actually is. So... Definitely put Don't Kill It on your calendars, March 3rd. It is out this Friday. And for those of you that are going to check out the video of the show when we get it up in about 10 days or so, you're going to see all this great, Brian's already chomping at the bit, my trusty sound engineer, Brian, all of the lovely merchandise for Moana, currently available on on digital download. But on March 7th, you can pick it up in... DVD and Blu-ray formats and all this cool stuff. They even, they partnered, they, Disney partnered with Kleenex to have Moana tissue boxes. And of course, all the adventure pack toys and my favorites, the Funko, the, the pop dolls. And I'm very, very happy because in the one that I got, it's Moana and her little sidekick, the little pig Pua, who. I don't think got enough screen time in the film. But having seen special uh, features that are going to be on the DVD, I can honestly tell you it is well worth picking up the DVD and Blu-ray just for all of the special features that you're going to get, including a couple little short films to boot. So be on the lookout for that. But big weekend in Hollywood. Uh, So we'll talk a little bit about that before we get to... Uh, before our guests start calling in, um, Brian didn't get to see all of the Academy Awards. He caught the the kerfuffle and debacle at the end. Yes, I am. I am very fortunate that I walked in after a busy day uh, and was able to see what I, I posted on Facebook, and you and you answered. 
had this ever happened before? Never. And had never happened. And it, and it struck me that it would happen in 2017, the year that... Of so many, so many debacles. Well, something that I posted on Facebook that a lot of people got a kick out of, you know, it's almost analogous to the political climate in that Trump was announced as the winner of the presidential election, yet Hillary got more votes but no one handed her the presidency. Yeah. La La Land was announced as the winning best feature film, uh, but Moonlight got no- more votes, and Hollywood did correct the error and give the best picture award to the the best the vote getter. I got I got this right here. Damien Chazelle, we're standing on your shoulders. So this is when they're on stage. We lost, by the way. But you know, guys, guys, I'm sorry. No, there's a mistake. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Moonlight, this is not a joke. This is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. This is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. All right, yeah. So I, it was. I walked in to see Emma Stone receive her award mm-hmm. for her performance in La La Land, which I was. I hoped had would win everything in its category, which I think it sort of did, right? It no, you know the the awards this year very evenly spread out. There was a lot of love for a lot of films this year, which I was really happy about. Of course, my I was particularly happy that Hacksaw Ridge, Kevin O'Connell, after twenty one nominations, finally got his Oscar for. The best sound mixing. Sound mixing, yeah. For sound, Hacksaw Ridge. Sound editing went to... Uh, Arrival. Yeah, Arrival. Which is fine. But sound mixing, you know, Kevin O'Connell, Robert McKenzie, uh, and their team, I'm so thrilled. Um, as everybody already knows, as you've heard right here on the program, the sound was one of the first things that I mentioned to Mel uh, at our Los Angeles press day. And, of course, John Gilbert, his superb editing. John walked away with the best editing uh, for his work on Hacksaw. So, And for those of you that haven't seen Hacksaw Ridge, it is it's either out right now or coming out within the week. I bought it on Blu-ray last week. Okay, so it's out. Yeah, if you missed out, uh, Target had a really cool steel, steel book, and they're the <gasps> only ones that had it. And it had a uh, DOS running into the field, and the, the entire tin box was just gray, and, and, and it was a marble green as if the sky was just falling apart. I love it. Wow. I'm going to have to look for it. Yeah. I, w- I had to travel to, to a, a Target nowhere near my house to pick up the last <laughs> copy at the one that they had there. But For those of you that don't know, Brian is obsessed with DVDs and Blu-rays. Obsessed. Yes. I, I collect them. It's weird to say collect films, but I like physical copies of movies. Well, yeah. Absolutely. As much as I enjoy digital movies as well you know buy when i get the voodoo and i when i buy the movie you know legally i, I don't illegally download movies. no you don't but I, I i love having the blu-ray instead of having the digital copy for sure i enjoy that and as everybody knows just when they watch the show here especially when we have our below the line behind the lens below the line guests on the guys from formosa you know i bring in my you know collections from my house that go back yeah vhs copies and <laughs> I think my favorite one that I saw was the uh, was the Back to the Future Part Two because it had the inserts. You still have, which you're like me, you keep the inserts yeah. for everything, and you it had all the merchandise you can purchase for that film. Yes, and I I got a kick out of that because I would have bought every single piece of merchandise that that was available for Back to the Future. Well, there Part were two. a couple VHS I had here the other week when uh, Ken Car- music editor Ken Carmen was here in studio. And there were inserts in those too because Ken picked up some of them, and you know they fell, and he's like. Before the show started, he was like, oh, my God. So, the Oscar yes. thing that, that occurred. I mean, they're calling it the best picture announcement. I mean, that's what it was. Yeah. Could it be and is it the biggest mess up on television his- in television history? No, it's not the biggest mess up in television history. It's the biggest, it's the biggest mistake in when it comes to the awards themselves with the Academy Awards, there have been many mistakes with the Academy Awards, but not on a level, not a technical level like that. Um, the only time they ever came close was years ago. Sammy Davis Jr. was presenting an award for either best original song or best score, and they handed him the wrong envelope. But he saw in the envelope it was the wrong envelope. So it was corrected. Here, you know... Uh, all the information still isn't in, but apparently the envelope may have said best picture, 
But inside was the a card that said Emma Stone, which is why Warren Beatty was stalling, and then had Faye Dunaway look at it. Personally, if you have a person's name on there and not just the best picture name, they should have just stopped and said, we need a minute, and called somebody from, you know, off stage. For those of you who didn't watch the video, Warren pauses yes. when he sees the card. And it wasn't – when, you, when, you, when you're looking back at it, it felt like he was joking like, oh, this one. But that now in retrospect, when you look back at that moment, it's, it's him trying to be like, okay, this isn't the correct card. And then he shows it to Faye who – she thinks that he's joking and then reads the first thing that I think she sees on there, which could have – the card was never shown. It could, no. it, it, whether it said Emma Stone for La La Land, whether it just said Emma Stone's name on it, it still hasn't come out. But there, there had to have been some – it had to have said La La Land in the card at some point. Well, even Best Actress, it'll say Emma Stone, Best Actress, La La Land. So I'm sure that that's where she took her cue. But there's so, there's so much out that's happening right now. You know, PricewaterhouseCoopers, uh, the accounting firm that for 80 years has handled the balloting and stuffing the envelopes. Okay, if we can start the pool now, whether they're coming back next year with the uh, with Ampass to handle this, but also Emma Stone said that she had people were saying, oh well, maybe you know somebody handed Warren the wrong envelope and card. No, he had a sealed envelope, and Emma said, no, I had my card in my hand. That was one of the first things that she said when she got backstage to the press tent. She goes, I want to tell all of you, no, I had it in my hand. Um, so either they're printing up duplicate things for each side of the stage or they printed up two Emma Stone cards in error and stuck one in a best envelope, best picture envelope. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But I do hold Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway partly responsible because they've both presented before. They know. And when you see something like that, it's like you stop. And you say, wait a minute, there are enough people, stagehands, the people from Price Waterhouse, Jimmy Kimmel, they're all right there in the wings. You know, it's a live show, but you can, you know, you get Kimmel back out there and, and he could have covered it up and gone to a, an unscheduled commercial break, something. Kimmel's great at Kimmel, living. And Kimmel was, I have to say, it is one of the most enjoyable shows and... I would give him a job for life hosting the Oscars. He was that good. He kept it moving. He was timely. He was topical. He was funny. The bits he had dropping, you know, there were two candy drops from little parachutes from the ceiling. Yeah, I saw that on, on articles. Episodes. And then there, then there were cookies and donuts that were dropped. Um, there was the tour bus stunt where they spent all this money and they rented out a Starline tours and it was a real tour, but the people had no clue where they were going. And then all of a sudden they opened the doors and in they come into the Dolby theater for the Academy Awards. So, I mean, there were, there was a lot of hijinks and the ongoing feud between Matt Damon and Jimmy Kimmel just perpetuated to new heights. I think that was funny before they presented the best picture. He came out and said, I can't wait to see, Matt Damon lose another Oscar. Yes. Uh, and that, I thought that was funny. But, but there's a, there was an earlier part with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon together on stage presenting. Jimmy Kimmel was down in the orchestra pit conducting the orchestra instead of Harold Wheeler. And he was playing Matt off every time he would open his mouth. <laughs> I, it was, and Affleck was right along with it. So it, it just played so, so well. Yeah, those guys are friends in reality. Oh, yeah. And that's what makes that, that rivalry so much better. But, you know, but the day before the Oscars, we had the Spirit Awards down the beach on Santa Monica in the 32nd Spirit Awards. And everybody knows that Film Independent the Spirit Awards are two of my big, big, big things. And uh, I was there on the red carpet again, which is actually a blue carpet with the Spirit Awards. And then in the press tent with the winners. And I'm just wondering here, do we have time for, I wonder if we have time to start any clips before Steve calls in. Uh, we can play the first Moonlight clip. All right, let's 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 start with the big winner at the Spirit Awards. Moonlight picked up awards for Best Screenplay, Best Director Barry Jenkins, Best Feature Film, Best Cinematography, Best Editing, and they held Barry Jenkins in the cast until the end of the ceremony because they were nominated for so many awards. 
and our phone is ringing, and we know it's Steve, so we're going to have to come back to to let you hear what Barry said to me when I asked him about winning the very prestigious Robert Altman Award, uh, which is a big thing in the world of independent film. That and the John Cassavetes Award are two of the – they're the big ones that independent filmmakers you know, always want. But right now we're going to go to – the fabulous Stephen Kachonis. Hello, Stephen. Welcome. Thank you very much. Can you hear us? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. <laughs> we can do our own Verizon commercial now. Uh, this is the director of Country Portraits of an American Sound. Wow. I love this documentary. Absolutely love it. It is not only beautiful, but you t- it, the touchstones sonically and visually are stunning. Absolutely stunning. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, how do, you are known for your documentaries. You've done, I think, 16 doc- documentary shorts prior to this feature-length country portraits in a, of an American sound. You've done the war photographers who shot rock and roll, very acclaimed short um water our thirsty world photojournalist behind the lens you know an impressive cadre of of documentaries what led you to country music and a feature documentary steve well the project is an outgrowth of sort of all those films you just mentioned we were commissioned by uh, the annenberg founding with several commissioned, I should say, saw documentaries on photography. And when it came to this project, the idea was, well, this is such a big subject, country music and the culture behind it. Could really expand this film into something feature-length and get out there in the world so more people could get. And that's what really happened with this project, sort of the early plannings. We thought, well, if we interview more people and get more stories covered, we can possibly take it out as an as a 88-minute film which we did how did you go about establishing number creating the narrative through line obviously you wanted to go in a temporal fashion but then with you know going all the way back to quote-unquote hillbilly country all the way up to the present how do you then break that down research it out and then find all of the interview subjects did you start with photographs in the annenberg collection or did you start with the music itself? Actually, initially in this piece, it was started with photographs. There were about seven photographers and two um, artists that were had been selected for a photograph exhibit that preceded the entire film project. And that already, in a way, was the, um, oh, I should say, selection process. Because photographers had covered the same story we wanted to tell musically. So what we did in the film is then how do I buy the country music artists whose careers intersected with those stories of the evolving image of the country star? That was really idea. And with this film, what was important, what kept us on track, was to say, you know, we're going to focus on the image, photographs, but also the image of people have in their heads about these country stars over the years, and that will sort of keep us on track so we just don't go off onto some tangents. We'll make this our contribution to the history, the, 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 the image of country. So how long did it take you to go through these photographs? <laughs> because it's like one is just as beautiful as the next. It's about a year-long process. And I should there was an earlier verse film that ran up about seven minutes that they did part of this little action. And so that movie was just only in the museum world and at one location. We back and sort of take it apart, um, expand it, and that's where we really were able to go deep into the collections of photographs. And really, in getting these photographs, it really was about sensing with those major photographers that had already been selected. Exactly, I think, of both line well uh, what just a collection of images taken off the internet this is artistic photographs telling a story and i think that it, certainly that helped in not having to go 
search for every photo and creation, um, but also gave it, I think, a real visual continuity. You know, Steve, I'm going to ask you if you can do us a favor, because it's like every other word is breaking up. I'm wondering Uh-oh. if you can hang up and, and call back in, and maybe we can get a better phone connection. Let me try that right now. Okay, thanks. All right, so this is this is the joy of live broadcasting, people. Um, <laughs> just like with the Oscars, who have live moments. We have live moments of terror here on Behind the Lens as well. But, you know, what Steve is saying, it is, it's... Very interesting, but yeah, it's, it's those of you that are listening live, you can hear that it's clipping perhaps every other word. So let's see if, if this recall in will sound. Uh oh. Uh oh, we're still cutting in and out. Let's see. We're, we're, I'm waiting here. We're waiting to find out. Waiting to find out. You know, if, if it's. Just, I don't know. I don't know what Brian is doing. He and Steve are talking. So I don't know what they're trying to do with sound issues here. So this is fun. This is fun. Where's Jimmy Kimmel when I need him? Okay. They're doing something. Well, uh, we're still having issues, so he's going to call back on a different line. Oh, okay. Yeah, I decided to let you know. I know that I'm able to to hear what he's saying and... Yes, I can't hear what's going on. I can just see the look on your face that it's like, no, it's still clipping. Yeah, no, it was still going. So here we go. All right, let's let's try this from a different phone. Yeah, ah, the joys of live. Okay, I hear an awesome sound coming. All right, well, I heard I heard I heard Brian g- giving the awesome signal, so. The signal, the connection must be much better this time, Steve. Okay, I hope that is better, is it? Oh, my God, that's perfect. Yeah, for a, for a movie that relies on sound, I'm not <laughs> providing a very good representation. <laughs> yes, well, you know, this. we'll blame the phone company. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, you know, that. oh, this is perfect. You know, as I was saying, though, you know, going through all of those photographs, because the Annenberg Center has thousands and thousands and thousands that are archived and preserved, you know, but then narrowing them down into eras and genres, you know, how many people did you do? Were you doing that all yourself? Did you have, you know, a staff of dozens helping you do that? We had a staff, I wouldn't say dozens, but quite a number of people doing research, but it's not just identifying the photographs. It's also about licensing the rights and, and, you know, all that other sort of, boring stuff that goes along with the job. I mean, essentially what we do is we try to identify the story we want to tell from the artists who have been interviewed and then you know, do our best to you know, visualize that and support those stories with great imagery. Well, and what I love is that you're not just talking to musical artists, but you're also talking to photographers who have taken a lot of these masterpieces. I think what's interesting is that the photographers as artists themselves are... In a way, they're a proxy for me as a filmmaker. I wasn't there 60 years ago, you know, at the Grand Ole Opry when some of these photos were taken, but some of the people in our film actually were, mm-hmm. like Les Leverett, uh, the Grand Ole Opry photographer. And so I find that, you know, photography, and including the photographer's voice, is a very strong way of putting us back in that time and sort of hearing it from the horse's mouth rather than a distant narrator telling me the story of being backstage at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. I'd like to hear the photographer who was there shooting it because, in a way, he is part of that story, too. And you can hear the passion and the enthusiasm to this day when they start talking about, you know, the events that they were, that they were privy to, the, the pieces of music, music history and life because so much country music, a lot of people forget that it's really structured and founded upon the idea of, of the human condition. Oh, absolutely. I think the one through line thematically that kept coming through, no matter who I was talking to, no matter what part of the music standard we were covering, was this idea of truth and authenticity. That no matter maybe the stylings of the music changed or, or, or the visual side of it changed in terms of you know wardrobe and effects and, and, and uh, whether it was a small 
a club or a huge arena that these artists were performing, the idea kept coming out that country music, in a way, represented this very simple, common notion of you know human joy, suffering, and everything in between. Well, and um, you me- you mentioned the costuming, and that was something that really. I just thought was absolutely fabulous in there when you brought nudies into the picture. Uh, Western film fans, anybody from Hollywood, old Hollywood, knows nudies. I had the pleasure of actually knowing nudie and going with a lot of the old Western stuntmen into nudies, which used to be there on Lancashire in North mm-hmm. Hollywood. And some of his most of the most iconic designs he had made for country Western singers were on display in the store. And uh, he, I mean, as you said, and as the, the photographs show in the, in the documentary, fashion became such an integral part of the transformation of country music. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was fun to go in that fashion, uh, see, see the fashion a little bit, because it is a part of it. I think, you know, the way... Artists present themselves as part of that, the whole persona they're creating, and one of the reasons that we're drawn to them. It, it's yes, of course, it's the the music and the sounds of their voices, but also the whole package. You know, I mean, you look at someone like Dolly Parton. It's the it's the whole idea of Dolly. You know, it's the music plus the image plus the hair plus everything else. But you know, what a lot of people also get to see is going back to, you know, when the Grand Old Opry was big, even on television. Uh, once they started airing it, you get to see pictures of people like Minnie Pearl, who maintained the same outfit and persona her whole career, but she fit no matter what decade she was in. Yeah, I think there was an understanding among artists that you want to solidify your identity with the public, and, and that's one way of doing it. You know, um, yeah, I think um, even Lyle Lovett had talked about this with us that. You know, the idea is to get people to notice you. So when he was coming up, he decided, I'm going to wear a suit. I sort of like the, the old look of country, you know, from whatever, whatever inspired him when he was growing up, and just took that on. Um, his, his, his hair was a bit of a surprise when it took on uh, sort of a life of its own in terms of uh, the press and the public's um, understanding of, of Lyle and his visual side. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I've got to I've got to talk to you about your editor, James Pendorf, because he's worked on all of you, all of your documentary projects with you. I think. Yes, many, 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 many many of them. But I'm curious how what was the editing process like for the two of you jumping into this feature length? Well, really, it was just an extension of what we've been doing before. I think one thing that has happened in doing these documentaries about photography and photographs, I think you know, we developed a bit of our own language in using photography to tell the story. The idea always being that we're not here to present a slideshow. You shouldn't feel like you're just watching a bunch of pictures that are being narrated, but we're sort of using the pictures to tell the story. But also, you know, the, the, the pictures come on sometimes in sync with the music, and it's sort of like we're helping you to see, I think, the pictures better by the way it's edited. And that just has come about through trial and error over many years of telling stories with pictures in a, in a motion picture format. Mm. Were the two of you editing as you went along in this process, or did you plan everything out and then go into the editing bay? A little bit of both. I think we tend to write scenes. And when I say write, it's we do what more often in our business call a radio cut, which is, I think is appropriate to this conversation. Mm-hmm. Where we're taking the, the interviews and sort of paring it down. Like if we could just listen to what stories being told by the different artists and photographers and historians who are in the piece and craft a scene, how then can we populate it? And so I think that's always the first thing is laying out that, that script, basically. That's not a script that we do before we shoot. It's a script that comes after we shoot, and we start laying out the structure of the scene and then populating it. And then as you populate it with images, you realize, okay, well, I can use some of this dialogue because now the picture is covering the story. And it just sort of works like that from scene to scene. And sometimes, depending on you know where you are in the project, you're not necessarily working 
in a linear fashion from the beginning of the movie to the end, you might be working on different themes throughout the piece. Mm-hmm. So now, what what did you take away from this project? I mean, you might, you've had an embarrassment of riches with interview subjects, with visual material. So what what do you take away from this? And could we possibly see a part two come around? I think I realized that you could tell a story with pictures at a full running time. We didn't really know that before. I mean, we thought so. But I think it... I found in this process that it holds up, and if you do it right, early in the film, you basically establish with the viewer that this is the style of this this project, this program. So if you get them on board and you're going to see this story through photography, then they're with you the whole way, and you just, you know, you just keep going till the end. I think in terms of it, you know, expanding into a part two, um, I don't know. I, I think... I sort of like the way this film looks at country music through this particular lens. And I feel that I don't want to say that you couldn't do any more because I'd always like to do more of any kind of project. But I, mean, I think the idea was to really focus on the image and see if we could sum it up in a feature one stock. Well, I think you definitely succeeded. And you gave us a beautiful historical retrospect of sight and sound in the process. I mean, it's, I can't recommend this highly enough for everybody listening, um, you know, to, to, to see this. And I know this has been a journey for you because you premiered back in 2015 at Nashville film festival. And now it's taken till 2017 till we get you in distribution. Yeah. I should say there was interest very early on, um, when the film premiered in 2015, but sometimes these things, take time, you know, and it's the early part of 2017, so it very easily been a, a 2016 release. So I, I, I would just say that, you know, luckily it's a bit of a timeless subject matter. So I think that helps a lot. Well, it really does. And with uh, the Country Music Awards, there are more coming up. You've got Keith Urban, who is one of your interview subjects. Keith imparts some great history about country music in the documentary, and he was just named, again, Entertainer of the Year and picked up more awards. So, I mean, there's always something very timely with country music and this documentary. Well, I hope a lot of people get to see it. And, you know, even if you're not a country music fan, I think you might appreciate the fact that country music is part of American culture and has, yeah. does play a role. And it's a way of kind of looking back at... Know, up to the 20th century and into the 21st century to see uh, where we come and where we're going. You know, as I said, it's a beautiful historical retrospect, and in this day and age, the more we learn about history, the more we can learn we know about the present. Yes, absolutely, and, and uh, it's been a great uh, joy to put this piece together. Uh, well, I can't wait to see what you do next, Steve. Please tell me you'll come back on the show with your next project. I would love to. I appreciate you having me on. Oh, I'm so excited, especially after I saw the doc and I was like, oh, my God, because I had already told the publicist. I said, as soon as I see this, I must speak with Steve. I knew before I saw it, I'd want to talk to you. And then after I saw it, I was just, you blew me away. You really did. Thank you so much. It's very nice to hear. Thank you, Steve. And I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Steve Kachonis, director of Country Portraits of an American Sound. Get it, get it, get it, see it, see it, see it. It is absolutely fabulous. And right now, talking about fabulous, I am so excited to have Mike Mendez join us today. Hello, Mike. Hello, how are you? I am fine. Oh, my, don't kill it. What a (laughs) What a film. (laughs) Good. I'm glad. Glad you, you seemed like you enjoyed it. That's wonderful. Very excited. To hear oh, I I was loving every minute of it. Heads getting blown apart. Body parts. There are more ways to kill people that you crammed into this 90 minutes. I'm so endeared to you right now already. This is yes. I'm, I'm speaking to the right person here. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the minute that I saw, and I have to tell you 
having Sylvia and her team as your publicist for this film, uh-huh. the minute they sent me an email about it, I emailed back and said, oh my God, Dolph Lundgren is as, as a demon hunter. I must see this now. Oh, excellent, excellent. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very different thing for Dolph. He's, he's not really done many genre films, so we were super excited that he was on board and, and willing to, to do something kind of different for him. Yeah, and it's funny because I've interviewed Dolph several times. Actually, I'm going to talk to the two of you tomorrow morning. Uh, oh, great. In person. Okay. Yay! All right, fantastic. But Dolph and I actually were, I worked on a film that he was involved in like 30 years ago. Uh, it, okay. I was doing Second Unit. And watching him through the years, and what people uh, seem to forget, Dolph, is he literally is a genius. <laughs> he is, you know, 160 IQ, MIT graduate. I mean, yes, he is, he is a force to be reckoned with. You know, it's like when, when he's in Expendables movies and they're making fun of him about blowing things up. No, he literally does know how to blow things up. <laughs> yes, no doubt. So obviously, anybody that knows anything about Dolph himself makes perfect sense that if you're going to have a demon hunter, if anybody can figure out how to do it, it's going to be Dolph Lundgren. He's the guy, yes, totally. Well, you know, this was a, a huge stretch for him because, you know, I, th- I think ultimately Jebediah is not necessarily the sharpest tack, uh, you know, th- there is. A, so, you know, so this was a little bit of a stretch because, because yes, Dolph suffers no fools. You know, he, he is a sharp, <laughs> sharp guy. So, You know, and... How did this project come to you? I mean, I'm thrilled. I don't know if you heard the top of the show when I was talking about you being on. You've got Dan Burke and Robert Olson, both editors, worked with Nick Dimitri on Stakeland, Stakeland 2, Stakelander. Um, and for Dan and Robert to work with Nick, who brought us films like Cold in July and The Sacrament, as well as the Stakeland films, you're already right. you're already ahead of the curve with the two of them writing this film. Yeah, well, look, it, it, it to, to give credit where credits due, it really all started with them. You know, they they wrote a, a very clever and fun script. Uh, you know that that a producer friend uh, Robert Yoakum had had found, and he had seen a movie of mine uh, many many years ago called The Convent, and he sort of felt that this was a good match energy wise, you know, he was like, who do I know that kind of does horror, but in kind of a quirky, funny way. And it really enjoys killing people. And he's like, Mike Mendes. Uh, so I, I was super blessed that, that that script just essentially kind of, kind of fell in my lap. And I, I, you know, had an immediate attachment to it, uh, and was like, yeah, I'm totally in, uh, you know, that began a, a three year process to, to get it funded, uh, and uh, you know, thankfully, we, we were lucky enough to, to find uh, Archstone Films, uh, Michael Slifkin and Scott Martin, who uh, came on board and, and were able to, to say, "Yeah, let's let's roll the dice, let's do it." Well, I know the first uh, so, the, so. the first film of yours that I saw was The Grave Dancers, which premiered at Tribeca. Right. So, I mean, I was already familiar with your work and knew going in with your name attached to "Don't Kill It" that I would be in for a ride. Good. I, I really appreciate hearing that. I mean, you know, I, I, that, that's always very sweet to, to hear when when people just seem to like that combination of, of of me and Dolph. You know, I'm just shocked when anyone has ever even heard of me. So you know, so I, I love I love hearing that that people just you know that that seems to be a combination that makes people want to see it. You know, uh, you know, to begin with. So thank you. That's, that's oh, wonderful to I hear. Mean, absolutely. But you know, what you do, your visuals. You know, some of the dialogue, we get a little campy with some of it, but, you know, that is the nature, uh, you know, I think that's the nature of what Dan and Robert have picked up when they were working with Nick. Right. Uh, But it works with this film, especially when you bring in somebody like Tony Bentley, who plays the sheriff, who provides most of the comedic relief here. Right. You know. Yeah, a lot of that was in the in the script, you know. They they, they were very uh, you know, they really had some kind of quirky characters and certainly the sheriff uh, you know, was sort of uh, a fun character to play because, you know, he he was sort of the the, the coward. And and I I feel the the smartest, I don't want to give anything away, but I feel the the smartest character in the movie uh cuz he does uh the, the right thing, which is essentially a uh, run, uh, <laughs> not get involved in this. Stuff. Well, you know, <laughs> considering he, he's probably on a beach somewhere, his character right now in Florida or something. So, uh, 
Uh, well, you know, considering that Dolph's character of Jebediah has already filled people in as to how this particular demon operates, I'd be running the other way, too. Right, exactly. Yes, totally. No, and, he's got the right idea, Teddy Bentley. Yeah, now, I've got to talk to you about working with Jan Michael Lasada, your cinematographer, because the film mm-hmm. looks beautiful, and it looks beautiful not just because of your framing, your use of light, you don't go dark with this. You keep your visual palette and your visual tonal bandwidth light, um, which a lot of people, when they're dealing with subject matter demons and things, they automatically go for dark. You didn't do that. You guys, you know, you kept it lighter and brighter. I, I think, you know, it's such an important thing with your cinematography to kind of reflect the, the tone of the movie. You know, sometimes there's kind of a mismatch if if we went really dark and, and, you know, over the top with, with, you know, being super moody, uh, you know, I think it would kind of take away from the light fun of, of the movie. Because mm-hmm. ultimately, you know, what, what we want is, is for audiences to go on a ride and have a good time. And, uh, you know, so tonally, I kind of felt that the movie's a little brighter than, than maybe the subject matter might lead you to, to believe it, it is, you know. So, so I think that was sort of well, maybe almost even a subconscious uh, thing to, to keep it uh, kind of kind of a little brighter and, and fun, uh, you know, because ultimately that that's what we want. We want people to cheer and laugh and 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 be on board and like the characters and you know and go on go on the ride. Well, even looking at the poster for the film, anybody who's been around for a while, the, the, I immediately the whole stance. You've got Dolph, you know, front and center on the poster, and I kept thinking Tom Hanks in the Burbs. <laughs> Good parallel. I like I like that. That's great. Yeah, but something that your cinematography that that you know you and Jan Michael actually have done have done really well with is in showcasing. You went to to Robert Kurtzman and his team mm-hmm. for your makeup and your effects. I mean, Kurtzman, you know, uh, Don Coscarelli, every fan, Phantasm, um, yeah. Bubba Hotep. All of that, John dies at the end. Don, he's the go-to guy. Kevin Smith goes to Bob for right. his last one, Yoga Hosers and Tusk, for a lot of that makeup and, and VFX stuff. What sense? Well, you know, I, I felt like, you know, with the opportunity to, to work with someone like Robert, you know, you know, Evil Dead 2 is, is one of, you know, probably the most influential film of my life. I feel my skill, my film school was was Evil Dead 2, ultimately. And uh, we shot the movie in Mississippi, and Robert works out of Ohio. And, you know, knowing that he was, you know, not that far away, an 18-hour drive away, I I was like, God, who better uh, to, like, come in and really kind of give us uh, some old-school practical gore? Because, you know, he was... He was there, you know, he, he on, on Tarantino sets, on, on the Sam Raimi sets, on, the, you know, like you're saying, yeah. Coscarelli sets. Like, he, he, you know, knows old-school gore, and, you know, I, I, I didn't want to have an over-reliance on, on CG, so it was really great to have uh, someone who just knows it so well that, that we could just sort of, because, you know, it was a, a crazy short schedule, uh, that someone who could be prepared and really run and gun and and splatter lots of blood uh, at a very rapid pace. You know, he was just the perfect guy for it. And, uh, you know, and he was wonderful, just super prepped. And, and you know, we had to really think on our feet and, and keep moving constantly. And, and he was great. It was just wonderful to have someone like that, you know, at your side helping you uh, create mayhem. So do we, do we have a, a kill count or a body part count? It's about it's about forty, uh, and and I I would say look I'm a I'm a demented person I'm slightly <laughs> disappointed if we if we had a few more days uh, and, and just a slightly bigger budget I was I was aiming more for seventy uh, but uh, but we were able to to kill about forty people well, which uh, you know I, 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 I that's respectful well you know, let I'm, me I'm, you know, I'm okay with that let me tell you that there the great scene where the town has this tiny town has come together for a town meeting to be informed about the demon and the demon hunter is now here to help save them if they're not idiots um (laughs) that one sequence it felt like a lot more than 40 people oh good good i mean yeah i'm I'm very happy to hear that because you know i I, again i I feel like got about half of what i what i would have uh got you know we we had we shot we were lucky you know especially on a short uh schedule we were lucky to to get uh like two and a half days 
uh, for that sequence, both the interior and the exterior. So really, you know, the kind of marching orders for all departments, stunt team, makeup effects, uh, you know, and, and us on, on the, the crew was just like, let's kill as many people as we possibly can in two and a half days. Uh, and, uh, that was just a joyous, joyous thing uh, for me. So, well, so uh, yeah, so I'm glad it felt that way. You know, one of the things that was, you know, a little disheartening was, uh, you know, the script was written probably a good four years ago. And when I saw the movie uh, Kingsman, uh, there was a sequence in it that was very similar to ours. Mm-hmm. And and we, we didn't have nearly the budget that they do. And they, they did a, a fantastic job. So we had to kind of figure out of a way of, like, how do we how do we make this kind of our own thing that's not just a, a copy of that sequence? And so, you know, I think that's where Bob Kurtzman comes in, uh, and we were just like, let's just make it more brutal and more bloody. Uh, and I think that was sort of the the secret to, to you know kind of giving it its own identity. Well, not just not just Bob helping there, but your editors. The well, edit- that is me. You did all the <laughs> editing on this one. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know you're prone to editing. Like, I didn't know that if you did all of this alone. So now, how does that, uh, directing and editing, does that help you with these low-budget, no-budget films? Uh, absolutely. And, absolutely. So the, I mean, you know, in, so, in some ways it's invaluable. You know, early on, the reason I became an editor, uh, you know, I've been making movies since I was 10 years old, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I make my stuff in, like, high school and college and, and whatnot. And you're your own editor at that point because you have nobody else. Uh, and then, uh, you know, and so a couple things I learned is, A, because I, I think, my you know, we started with video cameras, but in, in college, you know, we experimented with Super 8 and 16 millimeter, mm-hmm. and you only have so much, you know, money and resources for a film, so you kind of have to storyboard everything and kind of plan how you're going to edit. And that, even though, um, you know, when I was younger, seemed like, you know, like a bit of a drag and, you know, oh, God, I wish I had more and, you know, didn't have to do this. That was really a great training ground to kind of learn what was essential to, to making a scene. So, um, you know, as years went by, you know, I, I, you know, became an editor, editor professionally just to supplement my income because God knows making indie films is not a, a great way to, to make a living. Uh, and it, now it helps me so much to be on set uh, and know exactly what I need uh, because I just have, have an editor brain that I know I, I need. You know, I can get away if I just have this insert and that wide and mm-hmm. that medium or whatever. Um, you know, I, it really, it, you know, my mind is just trained that way now to, that I just know exactly what I need on set. And that, you know, helps me, you know, when I'm in the editing room. Now, I will say, because as, as time goes on, budgets for independent films get smaller, I'm sure it would be great to work with an editor. I, I look forward to this day uh, at some point because it's a lot of work. Uh, but, uh, you know, in the meantime, to kind of save money and just sort of help out, uh, I, I've just been editing my own movies. And it's it's oddly addictive because, um, you know, no one else touches the movie and, and it really is kind of becomes an autonomous, you know, kind of feeling. But at the same time, it would be great to have another pair of eyes and just another set of hands uh, doing it because it's, it's uh, you know, it's certainly a, a marathon, uh, you know, editing a movie. Well, I have to ask you, one of the standout, besides all the glorious, the body count and the blood, uh, <laughs> the demon scream. Because in this film, for our listeners, um, as the demon passes from one person to another and invades, a, uh, inhabitates, inhabits a body, inhabitates, yeah, my brain's working well, um, there is this blood-curdling, very bizarre demon scream. Where, right. did, where did you find that scream? The God's honest truth is, you know, it it wasn't in the script. You know, the, in the script, the, the demon just sort of, you know, because, you know, in case just to catch up your audience, the, the, the demon jumps into what it, the body of whoever killed it last. So it was kind of defined by, by black eyes, which was fine. But, but I'm just like... God, I was like, I didn't feel that that gave the the demon its own distinct personality. Mm-hmm. And it was funny that it really came about one day. And I don't remember if it was that deep into it, because I. Uh, but but it really came from like having uh, my headphones on and hearing um, the the uh, the sound recorder like had some frequency that would just sort of freak out, just like a. <laughs> 
yeah. you know, kind of, kind of sound. And, and then that, like, I kind of like pictured that, like, well, well what if that, that like kind of horrible screeching was the, what, what the, the demon would emanate when, whenever, you know, it was in kill mode. And so that kind of became the, the, you know, kind of the signature, uh, demon thing. So it really kind of was a, a bit of a happy accident, just the right, you know, frequency that just sort of annoyed me in a certain way that was like oh my god that's horrible you know, i love it we gotta use it it's akin yeah. to nails on a chalkboard almost yeah kind of yeah very much so you know music you've got scoring but it is very judiciously used you are not overpopulating this film with music with score it is not leading anybody it is not forcing us to feel something what what were your considerations with the music that you did include here? Well, you know, the thing was that that I, I was looking for, and again, I, I, I when I kind of picture something, if it, if it's really connecting with me, I kind of hear a certain you know music or whatever the right thing is, and and what what felt right was kind of a low pulsy you know kind of thing that 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 felt dreadful but but when the attacks happened i wanted like a really primal uh you know kind of almost industrial kind of thing and so uh we were looking for a composer and a friend had recommended uh a a composer friend of his uh named sean beaven and sean was relatively new to scoring but he had a, a an amazing history in music. He was responsible for uh, producing Nine Inch Nails, The Pretty Hate Machine, oh, okay. and The Downward Spiral, and also Marilyn Manson's uh, Antichrist Superstar. And as I like, kind of you know, grew up loving those albums for one thing, but loving kind of industrial music, I was like, well, that that would be kind of interesting. It's like let's go to the actual source of industrial music, uh, and, and really kind of like, like make that kind of like this really primal industrial score. Uh, and, and so, you know, and he, he's just a, a natural, I mean, he worked very quickly and just, you know, I think he's only been scoring movies, I think now three years, uh, but relatively new, but, but it, it just came so natural to him that, that it was a really good fit and kind of gave me that, that primal, you know, feel I was looking for. Oh, no, because, I mean, it was so often, as I'm sure you know, with a lot of quote-unquote horror horror films, even horror comedy or with light touches of, of laughter in it, the music can be very oppressive and heavy. Right. And you don't have that at all here. It just, it goes with the whole, the lighter visual tonal bandwidth, the sonic tonal bandwidth. You keep everything on a lighter note. And it's just, it makes it refreshing to watch this film. Oh, good, good. I mean, I, I hope people agree. You know, some, sometimes, you know, people go like, oh, I, wa- I want my horror dark and scary. But but I, I think there's room for both. I mean, I think that's one of the things I love about the horror genre is that there are kind of subgenres, many, many subgenres, that, you know, within the horror genre. And uh, one that I've always enjoyed is, is slapstick, which is sort of the Peter Jackson, Sam Raimi uh, kind of thing. But but I, I do feel that there's lots of, of room for, for humor uh, in horror. Even, uh, you know, the, an instant classic that came out this weekend, uh, Get Out, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, even, even that has a, a you know, wonderful use of, of horror because they kind of think comedy and horror kind of play on the same kind of thing. It's a buildup and a release. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, that, that's always kind of a appeal to me is cause I, I like scary and dark like anybody else. I mean, I like, you know, the witch was one of my favorite movies of last year. It was awesome to see, uh, it get some love on, uh, independent spirit awards this, this weekend, yes, Robert Eggers uh, you know, so I, I love the dark and moody, but, but I also like to laugh and, 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 you know, in certain movies, particularly something like don't kill it, where you have Dolph Lundgren as a demon hunter, it's like, you just want to have a good time. So I, I feel like, you know, especially when I, I watch the movie with an audience or at a festival or whatever, it's like, I want to hear that audience. I want to hear them either jump, scream, or laugh. Uh, and if I'm not hearing that, I don't feel I'm doing my job. So uh, so whatever I can to elicit those reactions, is, you know, I, I feel what I'm attracted to. Well, for my money, Mike, you have done your job and done it very well. We don't oh, kill it. You. Thank you so much. And everybody else can see it this Friday, March 3rd. It's out. And I'm going to see you and Dolph first thing tomorrow morning. I can't wait. I, I love talking to you. This was this was great. I mean, you, you, you certainly, I, I really, uh, 
love your attention to detail and, and knowledge of, of the genre. It is very impressive. So, you know, I oh. feel like I'm talking to a kindred. So, you know. You are a kindred, Mike. Trust me. You are a kindred. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much. And, I, and you will come back on the show again. Anytime, of course. Wonderful. We can always talk about, do a whole show on editing. All right, love it. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, that would be interesting. I, I rarely get to talk about that side of my life, so, so yeah, that would be very interesting. Well, then we're going to take, you and I are going to make that happen. Okay, cool. All right, anytime. So, thank you so much for having me on. Oh, thanks, Mike, and I'll see you tomorrow. All right, sounds good. Have Bye-bye. a great day. Bye. And that was Mike Mendez, director of Don't Kill It, and truly, everybody needs to see it. You will have fun. But now, while we still have some time left, let's let's go back to the Spirit Awards, especially since Mike also brought up the Spirit Awards talking about The Witch, which picked up uh, some awards for Robert Eggers. But we were talking about Moonlighting, uh, Moonlight, and since Moonlight was the big winner, best, best feature at the Academy Awards, also the best, as I said earlier, best feature, Spirit Awards, best screenplay, best director, Barry Jenkins, Best Cinematography for James Laxton. Best Editing for Nat Sanders and Joy McMillan. When they all congregated at the end of of the ceremony in the press room, I had a chance, and they also were awarded the Robert Altman Award, which is given for the the ensemble cast, the best director and and casting director. I had a chance out of everything to ask them. I had to ask Barry Jenkins about the Robert Altman Award. First of all, congratulations on the multiplicity of awards that so many of you have won today. So well-deserved. I'm curious, Barry, and if anybody else wants to weigh in, the importance of the Robert Altman Award for the casting and the production of this magnificent film. Yeah, I think it just speaks to the idea that it takes a village to raise a child, as Adam said. Um, anytime uh, a wise, sweet public cast, who the producers, uh, anybody is awarded, I think it's, uh, it's really best. So, uh, to me, it's the highest honor of any award that we received tonight. Because all these folks, especially people in front of the camera, uh, they want their full selves, you know, that was needed to bring the project to the screen. Beautiful job. And, should we keep with the moonlight theme? We'll keep with the Moonlight theme, and let's hear next from editors Nat Sanders and Joy McMillan, number three. Yes, Brian, clip three. Well, pay attention, Nat. Pay attention. <laughs> Just because it's your second time around back here. Congratulations, guys. Hold yourself. How does it feel? Second win for you, Joy. First win on this incredible ride. I don't know what happened with the clip, but let's go and hear from James Laxton, who picked up the award for Best Cinematography for Moonlight. James, congratulations. Oh, thank you. An, an amazing job. And one of the keys to this film that we don't often see is the triptych formula in, in the story construct. And how important what cinematography, therefore, becomes even more important yeah. than normally. So how did you go about approaching that continuity while still developing distinct timelines? Yeah, it's something, you know, the, the truth is I think we're actually more concerned with not making three short films. That was our biggest kind of concern in that sense. Um, we did do, use, like, different tools and different uh, uh, techniques in each thing, but by no means were those hard and fast rules. So, uh, you know, um, the, the, the concern for us, like, like I said before, was to not have feel too separate and still feel like one life, lifeline and one lifetime that we were sort of expressing. So, yeah. And I think that is all the time we have today. Is it, Brian? He's shaking his head. Yes. Good radio. Pardon? Good radio just shaking my head. Yeah, good radio shaking your head. Well, there will be full Spirit Awards coverage up on MovieSharkDeBlore.com today and tomorrow with uh, videos probably up by the end of the week. Fingers crossed that my editor has them done by the end of the week when when I get the raw footage to her. But next week, it's March. We've got a full slate. 
next Monday. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Mm-hmm.